this is a re-recorded and re-enhanced episode because the previous version sounded like I woke from a 10-year coma. Hopefully, you enjoy this one. Every now and then, we all get unexpected visitors. They show up unannounced and may or may not interrupt your evening routine, much to your dismay. But what if those said unexpected visitors came from the sky? Well, I'll be talking about one event in which this happened. Join me and listen to a yarn about the Reverend Gill UFO encounter. Hello there and welcome. I'm your host Elle and you're listening to one of many bizarre yarns. Just a quick note before we start. For this episode, I heavily reference the book UFOs Down Under, Australasian Encounters by Barry Watts. This book is very information heavy and a very useful resource. If you're interested in ufology, especially the lesser known cases, I highly recommend it. That being said, it's time to yarn. So this case didn't actually happen in Australia. Instead, we're going upstairs to Papua New Guinea. The nation is situated north of Australia, and the capital city is Port Moresby. Going further, I'll be addressing it as its initials, PNG. And while we're at it, I'm going to give you a mini history lesson, because context is important as to why we're here in the first place, And it'll give others that aren't too familiar with our northern neighbour to get to know it more. Human settlers first arrived on the land around 50 or 60,000 years ago, walking down from Southeast Asia via a land bridge during the Ice Age. The land was one of the first few places to develop agriculture, and an example of a domesticated plant they harvested and still do today, is taro. Although it is no longer practiced today, cannibalism and headhunting was common among tribes. However, there is speculation that some tribes still do practice cannibalism, but they are likely tribes that haven't had much contact outside of their closed community and do it for cultural reasons, even though it's frowned upon. Regarding colonialism, PNG had their fair share of European occupiers since the late 19th century. Germany claimed the northern half of the land in 1884 and declared it German New Guinea, and was the source of coconut oil for Europe. Meanwhile, in the same year, Britain claimed the southern coast of the land along with the neighbouring islands, 
and the area was known as British New Guinea. Later on, in 1902, it became a part of the Commonwealth of Australia, and in 1905 became the Territory of Papua, and in the following year an official administration was initialised. In 1914, during World War I, the Australian military occupied German New Guinea until 1921. And of course, after the war, Germany gave up 13% of their colonies in agreement with the Treaty of Versailles, German New Guinea being one of them. And then, in 1920, the British government obtained a mandate from the League of Nations so that Australia could govern the country thus making it an external territory. But then the territory would be encroached by Japanese troops in 1941 during World War II, and Australians and Papua New Guineans fought side by side to try and get rid of their new threat. The invasion by Japanese forces would actually suspend the mandate. After Japan surrendered in 1945, the territories of New Guinea and Papua were combined as one administration, and became Papua New Guinea. However, it was still a territory of Australia. Around this time, Australian patrol officers called Kiups were stationed in PNG and performed tasks such as checking in with villages and tribes, taking censuses, and law enforcement. Additionally, Christian missions of various denominations were also established, providing education, medical care, and spreading the word of God. Today, Christianity is the most dominant religion in the nation, with roughly 95% of Papua New Guineans identifying as Christian. PNG was Australian territory until 1975, when they finally gained their independence. The nation has around 850 different languages and an abundance of cultures. As it's right on the underside of the equator, PNG has a tropical climate, being either hot or humid, or pouring down. The people are also friendly and hospitable in my opinion, based on a personal experience. Oh. And they love a good get-together. Anyway, let's move on. So this bizarre incident happened way back in the year 1959 in one of these Christian missions. Bowenai Mission in Millen Bay, situated in PNG's easternmost region, is the location where this encounter took place. The central person to all of this is Reverend William B. Gill an Australian Anglican priest who was leading the mission at the time. During the late 50s, there was an increase of UFO activity in the Millen Bay area, as chronicled in a 1960 publication of The Flying Saucer Review, Volume 6, Number 6. The sightings were described by another clergyman, Reverend Norman Crutwell of the Menapi Mission, and a good friend of Gill. The publication detailed 
that there were sightings of flying lights that were initially sporadic, but eventually became frequent around autumn 1958. People witnessed lights flying around, and even something like a green-coloured flare was observed. And in the following year, people have reported seeing bright white orbs whizzing about. They moved in ways that regular stars or even shooting stars could not, and at times were spotted in low altitudes. One was even seen flying in front of a 1,219 metre mountain. If it were to say space debris or a shooting star, Gravity would make it fall to the Earth in one direction, rather than fly around like it was being controlled. Now back to Reverend Gill. He was sceptical of the flying light phenomenon that was frequently reported. Though, on April 5, 1959, he saw a strange light of his own, flying over Mount Puddy. Of the sighting, he said... Quote, this light moved faster than anything I've ever seen. Unquote. Then, a couple of months later in June, his assistant, Stephen Moy, claimed to see a flying saucer. Upon hearing about this, Reverend Gill was still somewhat dubious about the existence of UFOs. He wrote a letter to his good friend, Reverend David Jury about his opinions on the matter. In the letter dated June 25th, he wrote, quote, That Stephen should actually make out a saucer could be the work of the unconscious mind, as it is very likely he has seen illustrations of some kind in a magazine, or it is very possible that saucers do exist, but it is only a 50-50 chance that they are not Earth-made, still less that they should carry men, more likely radio-controlled, and is still unproven that they are solid. Unquote. But the night after Gill wrote the letter, an extraordinary encounter would happen that would render the clergyman somewhat a believer. Not just in God, but in something else. Gil wasn't alone when this phenomenon happened, so this isn't just some lone man's crazy story. Other witnesses include Stephen Moy, teachers Ananias Rorata and Mrs. Nessie Moy, whom I believe was Stephen's wife, and around 34 others at the mission. On this fateful evening, Reverend Gill walked out of the dining room and looked up at the sky to observe Venus. But along with the planet, he saw another bright object in the sky. He observed it for a while and saw it make a descent down towards the mission. It descended down to what the priests estimated to be either 122 metres or 90 metres above the ground. Upon closer inspection, the object appeared to be a strange glowing craft of some sort, 
Reverend Gill drew a picture of the strange ship, and I posted that on Instagram so you can visualize it better. It was shaped like a disc and had this boat-like superstructure extruding up from it. This superstructure seemed to be an observation deck of some sort. The unusual craft also had four legs, comprised of two pairs on each side of the undercarriage, protruding down diagonally the way tripod legs would. The base, so the bottom disc part of the craft, was estimated to be 10 to 12 metres across, while the observation deck was probably 6 metres in diameter. In what appears to be in the middle of the craft, there was a thin blue spotlight pointed at an angle towards the sky. This light would periodically flash on and off. The craft was also either dull yellow or pale orange in colour. It didn't emit any noise like a plane or a helicopter would. It was completely silent. Moving on, the witnesses could actually just make out four figures that they described to be human-like. The humanoid figures were in the observation deck, at times bent over, looking like they were working on something, making repairs to the craft or whatnot. Sometimes they'd stand upright again and look in the direction of the people below. They'd also come and go from the observation deck and walk around. At some point, one of the strange men on the craft rested against the waist-high wall of the upper superstructure, watching the people below, and Reverend Gill waved at him. The man waved back to him, describing the gesture to be, quote, as a skipper on a boat waving to someone on the wharf, unquote. One of the teachers, Mr. Ananias Rarata, waved both his hands above his head, and two of the men waved back to him. Reverend Gill got a boy to get some paper, a pencil, and a torch so that he could record the observations of the peculiar vehicle and its passengers. The boy came back with the supplies and gave the pencil and paper to the reverend. Then, the boy shunned the flashlight up to the craft. He lightly waved the torch side to side, and in response, the craft mimicked the movements, which astounded everyone on the ground. The kids called out to the beings on the strange ship and beckoned them to land. Even pointing the torchlight down to the ground to signal the visitors. However, they didn't respond, and it's likely at some point later the visitors left because Reverend Gill later explains that the ship returns. So, the day after the first sighting, the unknown flying craft came back at around 6 pm. They would try and signal to the visitors to come land again, and this time it appeared that the craft grew bigger as if it were teetering closer to the ground. 
though again it didn't land. It was as if the visitors were wanting to get a slightly closer look. It was decided that the scheduled evening service would carry on because the community believed that their friends in the sky would probably stick around while they had their evensong. Though, by the time the service was finished, the weather turned overcast and the craft became obscured by lower altitude clouds. They observed for about another hour, and then, at breakneck speed, the craft shot off and left. A little while after the sightings, Reverend Gill went back home to Australia, as he was scheduled to do so. Later on in the year, on October 28th, he gave a lecture in Melbourne to the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society about his outlandish experience back in PNG. The society was impressed by the Reverend's story and considered it to be, in their words, quote, the most remarkable testimony of intensive UFO activity ever reported, unquote. Regarding UFOs and the mission sighting in particular, politicians were contacted to see if they are or can investigate the happenings. Roughly six months after the sighting, two Air Force officers from Canberra went to speak with Reverend Gill to question him about his encounter. But the Reverend later said that they talked about stars and planets before leaving. Then the Department of Air Force Intelligence concluded, quote, Although it is not possible to draw firm conclusions, an analysis of rough hearings and angles above the horizon does suggest that some of the lights observed were the planets Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars." Unquote. After the encounters, Reverend Gill went on to teach in numerous grammar schools in Melbourne and at times would do interviews and lectures regarding the strange encounter in Bolanai. People were perplexed as to why he carried on with dinner and the evening service, despite the fact that the unusual craft and the four mysterious strangers were there watching them, in the sky. To that, he replied, quote, it was partly because there was nothing eerie or otherworldly about any of this. It was also ordinary, as ordinary as a Ford car. It looked like a perfectly normal sort of object, an earth-made object. I realise, of course, that some people might think of this as a flying saucer. The figures inside looked perfectly human. Unquote. Reverend Gill passed away on the 13th of June, 2007, aged 79. His last public lecture was four years ago in 2003, where he wondered about the origins of the Bowenai visitors. UFO researcher and author Bill Chalker was there for the event and even recorded the lecture. In his words, it was the closest Reverend Gill said to saying that the visitants were angels. 
a theory that didn't diverge at all from his religious views. So, who or what possibly were the visitors in the craft? The Reverend himself believed them to be of human nature and maybe angels. Possibly since this was during the Cold War era, it might have been a secret military prototype for a human carrying drone or whatnot. But in this modern day, we haven't exactly produced a craft that is this advanced. Or at least that I know about. Or maybe, just maybe, these visitants aren't of this world. If you're familiar with extraterrestrial encounters, some witnesses have claimed to see otherworldly beings that look human particularly the Nordic-looking ones. Although they have heads, shoulders, arms and torsos, it'd be a bit difficult to gouge how the passengers on the craft look like, since people are ant-sized when they are roughly 100 metres away. But Reverend Gill and the others on the mission were intrigued by them rather than terrified, and the visitors didn't seem malevolent and in fact, communicated back to them. When I was researching for this episode, I came across a forum discussing a theory regarding this sighting. On metabunk.org, one member proposed that the craft they saw in the sky was probably a false horizon, better known as a Fata Morgana. According to the website skybrary.arrow, a Fata Morgana is a type of mirage that happens when light waves move through layers of air with different temperatures. Thus, something that is on the ground or water may actually look like it's floating in the air. My dad saw one of those once, but what he saw was a train chugging away in the sky. So going back to this metabunk.org forum, they suggest that perhaps it was a mirage of a squid or fishing boat that people at the mission saw, especially that nighttime fishing requires a ton of lights on the boat so you could actually see what you're doing. Which explains the glowing appearance of the craft. While it might seem like a plausible and rational explanation for what happened, there's still something that's gotten me stumped. For instance, how could a mirage respond to a torch's movement by mimicking it? And also, the visitors waved back in response to the people on the mission waving at them. If it really were a Fata Morgana, the gestures of the people on the supposed fishing boat would have coincidentally been timed so that it appeared that they were waving back to the folks on the ground. I don't know about you, but personally I'm not too sure whether this mirage theory carries much weight. At the end of the day, neither of us were there, so regarding whether this sighting was a mirage or a bunch of people on a technically advanced aircraft, or even aliens, is left for us to ponder. 
Though, in my own personal opinion, I do think that Reverend Gill is a legit witness. His story never really changed over the years he lectured on it, and never concluded that the visitors were aliens. To me, I'd say that a priest would be the last person to claim to communicate with UFOs. But again, that's my opinion, but I'd also like to hear what you think. So this concludes this yarn. I've always been interested in UFO sightings and encounters, though I wouldn't exactly want to see one for myself. I'm too much of a scaredy cat for that. Have you seen a UFO? I wouldn't mind hearing about it. Anyway, thanks for listening. My socials and contact details are in the show notes, but I will say that I'm mostly active on Instagram, so you can follow me there primarily. Rate, comment, and tell your friends, family, and your family doctor to go have a listen to this show if they're interested in weird topics. I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. And don't forget to lock your doors and ignore the strange lights outside. See you soon! Thank you for tuning in to Bizarre Yarns. This episode was researched, written, and edited by L Host. Bizarre Yarns would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land it is being recorded on. It always has and always will belong to the First Nations people of Australia. If you have any questions or just want to give your two cents, contact me via email or Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, all of which are in the show notes. Again, I'm grateful for you listening, and I look forward to the next yarn. Thank you.